What are both of you doing for your significant others for Valentine's Day? I put on my calendar to buy a present and then I got to looking good so far. What kind of, are you an acts of service partner, Maddie? How does this all work? What's your love Providing language, Henry? lots of knowledge, eh? Yeah, that's what I do. I serve all of you with my infinite amount of wisdom. Grant Robertson would be a much bigger threat to Lamingtons than Lamingtons would be a threat to Grant Robertson. Not the slushies! I wonder whether or not anyone ever asked Barack Obama and John Key if they met because they were of similar age. High taxing, big spending, big government. OK, Boomer. For people to get outside and to uh, spread their legs. The people have given us the mandate and we are ready to go to work. Hello and welcome to the Iron Duke Podcast, your weekly catch-up of all things policy and politics, where we run you through our peaks and our pits, interesting bits, and anything that fits from New Zealand and around the world. I'm Jesse Caller, and I'm joined today by Henry Levitt and Maddie Burgess-Smith. Hey guys. Hey Jesse, hey Maddie, great to be here. Look, let's let's crack straight into it. I'm busy, the listeners are busy, I'm not sure what you guys do here, but maybe you're busy as well. Well, My (laughs) peak of the week. Let's go, give it. Is a change that the Reserve Bank is making. Now this is quite an interesting one. Currently in New Zealand, you can go to a bank and if you can say, look, hey, I can pay the money back, the bank will lend you just about as much money as you want. My peak this week, however, is that pretty soon the Reserve Bank are going to be introducing a requirement that says you can only borrow, let's say to buy a house, to buy a car, to buy a business, to buy a trip overseas with your loved ones, six times what your annual income is. Now this is so important because at the peak of the housing market, keep in mind kind of COVID years, at one point we were seeing people borrowing 15 times their annual income to buy a house. Wow, that's crazy. Yeah, so I mean if you were on a household income, you know, you and me, Jesse, and we were making $100,000 a year, we could go out and buy a $1.5 million home. And that's fine because we were able to service that debt back when um, interest rates were only about 2.2%. Gee, but now, yeah, it gets tough. Now what we're seeing is interest rates up around 7, 8, pushing 9%. Mm. And those people who were able to get into housing then uh, are absolutely pushed to the wire and the banks have allowed this to happen. If I, if I yeah. recall correctly, they were getting stress tested at the kind of five or six percent range certainly back when I got a mortgage in 2021 um, I think I was tested at about six percent and we're, we're blowing past that we're now. blowing way past that and look whilst it will make it harder for some first home buyers to get into the market when you think about it with the average house price in Auckland and if you can only borrow six times what you're making in a year you need to be making $172,000 a year that's a lot of money for a household. That's a that's lot huge. more money than Henry Levitt makes, that is for sure. <laughs> Average household in New Zealand, that's $154,000 a year, which is what you've got to be making. And that's $27,000 higher than the average earner. Jeez. The reason I'm picking this as my peak of the week is that these borrowing requirements meant that people were just offering crazy money on houses. House prices continued to spiral out of control. It's important to note that, you know, when your income, on average, they're only raising by like 3 to 4% per year. House prices are climbing by often double digits worth of points a year. Mm-hmm. And so doing something like this ties house prices more closely to wage inflation. And that's really important because we've got to be able to afford to pay back the debt of where we live. Yep, but agreed. at the end of the day, though, people do still want to buy houses because, as you said before, they're going up, what, 5 10% a year rather than your wages. If you look at this in terms of property investors, they often go way higher, higher risk, more reward. So they're going to actually be really tapered back by these because they can only borrow about, I think, seven times their um, income. But yeah, a lot of property investors will be borrowing a hell of a lot more usually. This restriction is going to pull them back a bit, maybe ease the market a little bit. And I think that's a good thing because if you look at Auckland, a lot of the mortgages that have been falling over have been from property investors who buy like multiple dwellings at one time. Yeah, just over leveraged. I think yep. two points to make here. One is just a little bookmark for my policy nerds out there. 
we need to pair this with something that unlocks new housing supply. So we there need to think is. about consenting, <laughs> we need the to policy think about king. land use, all of that kind of stuff. Just bookmark that. The other point I make is that this is the time to make a rule like this mm. if you're going to do it. So um, right now we're in an environment where you've got 7 maybe 8% interest rates. Uh, not many people flooding into the market in terms of trying to get access to A hell of a lot cooler than it was before. Totally. And I think banks coming in and saying we are actually going to put a bit of a safety net in place to ensure that families don't find themselves in these sorts of positions. You've got people who bought houses, you know, at, at 10 to 12, 15 times their income only a few years ago, who are now being saddled with, with interest payments of up to $50,000 more a yep. year. Yep. And it's funny if you think about like the conversations around town at the moment compared to a few years ago. Everyone was complaining, oh, the banks have too many regulations in place. It's requirements I can't get a loan out because they're testing it at five or six percent that's ridiculous but now that we've got interest rates over that you're like wow it's actually like they were testing it at least at that amount totally and I think unless you're one of those families in that dire situation right now it's so hard to understand just the level of hardship that banks have actually put you through final point you know when you're talking to people about how hard it is to get into the housing market or how hard it is to pay a loan and they're like, oh, well, back in my day, interest rates were 18%. To put this into perspective, where we had people a couple of years ago paying 15 times their annual income, back in our parents' day, so if you're buying a house in the 90s, the average house price when I was born, 1997, was 2.4 times someone's annual income. So right. if you're, you're paying 20% um, interest, but you're only you're pay, paying it only 20% takes a few years to pay off. F- all. Exactly. exactly. And that safety net bought to us by the ugly Australian banks is my pick of the week. And talking about safety nets, my pick of the week is discussions are being had around mental health being added as an emergency response. So the idea here is that there's been recent briefings um, that have been released about how police potentially shouldn't be involved um, in mental health call-outs. So when someone rings 111, um, a paramedic and a police officer might come out if they're having like a mental health crisis. And the idea here is that they're considering pulling together a specialist group um, of first responders for people who are specifically in a mental health crisis. So like social workers. Yeah, exactly. So there'll be a specialised group out there of people who are experienced in helping people with mental distress. So the reason why I like this is that mental health is obviously a huge issue in New Zealand. Our statistics on suicide, number affected, and also our wait times are all becoming worse and worse each year. And there's also this narrative about us not having enough capacity for fire, ambulance and police as well. So when you bring these two um, problems together, bringing in a specialised unit uh, for mental health is a great idea because it, it helps people with mental health problems get the attention that they need at that time while also freeing up some capacity for the other responders if need be. I think you're being really optimistic, but also really naive about this. It's just not going to work. It's going to end up looking the same as our current ED departments, which is that they've become pseudo-GP clinics because people can't get in to see the individual they initially needed to see who was their doctor. And the same thing's going to happen here. People can't get in to see a counsellor or a therapist, so they're just going to end up calling this number. They're going to be inundated. I, I cannot see a situation where this works because we don't currently have the therapists, the social workers, the frontline clinicians that we need to actually make something like this happen. And to your point about whether this is going to work, I think Matt Ducey's the first Minister of Mental Health in mm. New Zealand. Yeah, Christopher Luxon made quite a bit out of that. Um, there's been a lot of criticism though that both National and Labor have played this game of introducing a new portfolio every time they find a problem. New Zealand's got something like 70 plus, 70 plus yeah. ministerial portfolios. Mm-hmm. Look somewhere like Germany, they've got 17. So much leaner, much more focused, much clearer where the responsibilities are. So this is this is potentially an early test 
for Matt Ducey is can you make this work and prove up this idea of having a minister who's dedicated in terms of their focus. But I agree, this, this sounds like something that's just going to put further strain on existing capacity issues. It's going to have to be paired with something else a bit more substantive. And forgive me for being cynical because I am really appreciative of the, the idea of trying something new and giving something a go. But the last government also tried to spend $1.8 billion on improving mm. the mental health outcomes of New Zealanders and look at look around. I think that at the moment that it already is a last resort. So people already are using the 111 emergency function yeah, um, that's a good to, point. to get people there. So it's now just going to be an extra service where you get a more appropriately trained person who comes and sees you. Yeah. Making sure that ambulance at the bottom of the cliff isn't an ambulance. Mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly. It might be a little RAV4 with a siren on top. Jesse, peak of the week. My pick of the week is Brown v. Brown. Rumble in the jungle up in Auckland. <laughs> in the blue corner, Minister of Transport in Auckland, Simeon Brown. In the... I don't know if you could call it the red corner, could grey you? Grey corner? Angry corner? The naughty corner? Fiery red. Fiery no. red so we'll, we'll say in the mayoral corner, we've got Mayor Wayne Brown. These guys have started to set up what I think is going to turn into a political clash that will kind of define the political year, up, at least up about, in Auckland. Actually, this is about cost of living. Uh, it's 11 and a half yeah. cents per litre more for Aucklanders. And so this is kind of a simplistic move by the government to solve something they told the public. It will, it will have unintended consequences, which we will both have to deal with. So just to unpack that a little bit, give you a bit of background. Simeon Brown is Minister for Transport. He's axed the regional fuel tax that was applied up in Auckland. 11.5 cents per litre. All Aucklanders had to pay it. The idea was that that funded Auckland dedicated infrastructure. This is pretty on brand for Simeon Brown. And what I mean is, in opposition, he was really critical of the fuel tax because it was imposed in 2018. It carried on through the cost of living crisis. So he, he talked up the kind of impact on households, costs and that kind of thing. Simeon, or the Minister of Transport, was also really critical of how Auckland Transport was spending that money. He really hammered them on things that he called non-roading projects, like speed bumps, cycle lanes, that kind of thing. Basically everything that National stands against. That's right, and I'll come to that actually, because I think what's happening here is Simeon is going through the process of clearing the decks. He's, he's wiping away what remains of the previous government's vision in terms of... Slate. Exactly. He's cleaning the slate for Auckland in terms of the vision for transport, vision for Auckland as a city. He hasn't yet articulated what his vision looks like, and that'll come soon in the next couple of weeks in the government policy statement on transport. But it's we kind of know what that's going to be, and it's going to be roads. He's a, he's a, he's a petrol head. He's a, he's a fan of the roads. Um, we know it's not going to include cycleways to everywhere. It's not going to include light rail. And now we know it's not going to include dedicated fuel taxes. What we've got is, on one hand, Minister Simeon Brown, on the other, Mayor Wayne Brown. Uh, both fairly forceful characters in their own right. And the Minister, I would say, technically, you've got a more powerful political figure. He's got more levers to pull. On the other, you've got the Mayor, who some people talk about as being the second most powerful politician in the country, but in reality, his manifesto for Auckland was essentially a wish list and saying, can Auckland please have some more autonomy and, mm. and resources from you, central government? So I think what we'll see over the next year or two is that conflict play out, and it'll be interesting to see if they can actually reconcile their possibly competing visions for Auckland and figure out a plan that actually makes sense. Auckland's going to be a super interesting one to see how it plays out, because it really does matter to the National Party. You've got to think about it. You know, National won the election not because they won New Zealand, but because they won Auckland. And they didn't win Auckland 
by people saying, oh, I loved Christopher Lux and love the National Party. Nope. No, no, no. Labour lost Auckland. That's right. So National actually do have to go back and win all of those votes one by one for a second time round because it won't be enough just to rest on the laurels of how pissed off people were at Labour following the lockdowns, following the response to the flood. So National really does need to deliver for Auckland. So I think what we're going to see with Simeon Brown as Minister for both Auckland and Minister for Transport is him working really, really hard to deliver for them. And I, I cannot see a situation where he's going to let Wayne Brown get in his way of that. Yeah, and interesting to remember he, that Simeon Brown is also Minister for Local Government. He's got such an interesting portfolio mix. But it'll be interesting to see if he's willing to work with local government or he's going to do stuff to local government. And we really don't know. We're, we've got some early signals that it might be the latter, mm. but we'll wait and see. Henry, Pit of the Week. My Pit of the Week this week is Donald Trump's remarks about NATO at a recent rally of his. That's odd. You're usually a big Donald Trump fan. Well, he, he's he's entertaining to watch, but yeah, definitely not a... Love your red hat, though. <laughs> yeah, I've got the red hat. It sits next to me in the office all day, every day. You didn't pay? You're delinquent? He said, yes, let's say that happened. No, I would not protect you. In fact, I would encourage them to do whatever the hell they want. You got to pay. You got to pay your bills. So what Donald Trump essentially did here was said that if you can't pull your own weight, you can get lost. And <laughs> I sort of get what he means with this. Like In the past, the US has definitely been sort of lent on by NATO uh, members uh, who, who don't have much of a defence system and they just think that, I guess, the US will always protect them. So Donald's sort of standing up for that point. But at the same time, this is probably not the best way to go about it. In a very public setting, trying to razz up everyone in his rally, and he's essentially giving a head nod to Putin by saying that. It's a classic free rider problem, right? And I think that the US, in terms of national security globally, they're the big victims of this, is that they spend up large on their big kit. It's why they Huge. don't have free healthcare, queue, shots of massive aircraft carriers, mm. Top Gun, all of that <laughs> stuff. Awesome. Love it. Big kit. But if you're America, the big hazard for you is that everybody else free rides off that. They're allies with you. They can essentially take a cross-subsidy. You're spending the money on defence. They can go and spend it on free healthcare so that they can frolic through the Alps. I'm, I'm really worried about this because we're the biggest free riders of them all. We spend the probably the same amounts on defence force as we do on roundabout upgrades in this country. Mm, cycleways. Cycleways. Probably half of the cycleway budget. Yeah, yeah. but we only, we only share a border with fish, right? We're not on the border with Russia. We don't know what's going on out there. Yeah. Everything's only a drone away these days. So you're right, you know, Donald Trump coming out and saying that is, is quite concerning. Yeah, for sure. And he's absolutely playing with fire here. And well, not even playing with fire, he's essentially fueling Putin's fire because we all know that Putin's method of sort of getting in the way and seeing where everyone else is sitting is that he loves needling, provoking and testing his opponents to see where they sit and quite how ready they are. Did they name names as to no, who the they freeloaders said, were? No, they just said a very big country. <laughs> oh, no, yeah, so the country very he was big. with. Yeah, you, can exactly. actually, you, you can actually mark the homework here. This is all public. NATO publishes the stuff. As recently as last year, only 11 out of the 30 countries were paying their way in terms of the reaching the 2% guidance. So you just say, I did spend this much. It'd be so easy to lie about it. $10 billion. You just, I've spent you just $10 billion dollars and I've actually <laughs> got a nuclear reactor on the moon pointed at yeah. you now. I'm expecting some like despicable me level of defence spending. Just buy a bunch of ambulances with Gatling guns and put them in the healthcare budget. It's all good. Putin's not going to look there. Speaking of things that are very expensive, skiing. 
so expensive. It's so expensive. $250 day passes these days. That is, that is like NATO-level defence spending expensive. But it's an expense we may not have to worry about for too much longer because it looks like just skiing in general is, is coming to an end for many of us. My pit of the week is the government essentially refusing yet again to bail out the uh, Whakapapa ski field. Now the reason that this is a pit of the week for me is that it seems like the last little while has been handout central for everyone. Those of you who are alpine inclined will remember that a couple of years ago, uh, Mount Ruapehu, Ruapehu Alpine Lifts, that was the name of the company, went into receivership, bankrupt, Mm. game over, Mm. sad times. Mm. A lot of that is to do with the old CC, climate change, obviously, getting warmer, less snow, less snow, less skiers, less skiers, less money, business, makes sense, right? They were, however, able to find two buyers. Now, those uh, unfamiliar with the Ruapehu region, there are two ski fields, Turo, which is on the southern side, and Whakapapa, which is on the upper side. Now, they found a good local Oakuni entrepreneur who came in and he bought the southern ski field for $1. However, Whakapapa, the northern side, home of the Skywalker, which many of you will remember from the Shane Jones slush fund, that's right, the PGF, gave them $40 million to just build a gondola up and down the most boring mountain in the country, they have until recently struggled to find a buyer. Now, February 3rd, a couple of guys come along, a couple of ski veterans in New Zealand, and they say, we will buy this shit of an asset which has $14 million of debt associated with the dumb gondola that Shane Jones and Winston Peters gave New Zealand, only if you underwrite the risk of us doing so. Couple of ski freaks, they're flush with cash, yep. but they don't want to take on any risk. They don't want to take on any risk. Now, it's important to note that this ski field in particular has come in and out of receivership a couple of times. And right now, the government is currently paying to operate it because it's paying the liquidators who then have to go in, on and operate it. And basically, these couple of guys said, well, if you're going to keep paying them to do that, then surely you would underwrite the risk for us to come in and operate it. The reason that this is my pit of the week is the government has said no, and we're yet again back at square one with no one to buy that ski field and a really, really important tourism asset for that region still without a future. I'll put it to you. That sounds like a peak to me. If it's that important a tourism asset, then it does beg the question as to why they haven't been able to make it commercially viable. So it sounds to me like the government's finally reached its threshold and said, look, we're just going to stop throwing good, good money after bad. Well, they either have a season or they have an average season if it's an average season all the locals and wellingtonians go there and they all have life passes so the mountain never makes money off their they day passes they all have life passes uh, they've already paid, they've already Ten, paid. Do, you know how much those are jesse this is just you and me in this conversation now because henry's just said yet another really inaccessible thing those are ten thousand dollars each well 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 no they were handing them up for free back in the day every man and their dog bought them because they're like seven eight hundred bucks each and just hand them out for free you both just want to see the business go under Look, full disclosure. Jesse, you I don't have ski. Never, I have never skied in my entire life. Henry have probably you skis at Whistler. I've seen the snow. I've driven up Mount Taranaki and I have touched <laughs> the snow. <laughs> How many times have you been to Japan skiing, Maddie? Look, um, uh, uh, <laughs> listen. Sounds like we need a segue That's to my redacted. pit of the week. My pit of the week is people who are arguing that we need to reduce the population or reduce the birth rate to combat climate change. And who decides who we either kill or don't birth? I reckon it's going to be like the public sector cuts. It's going to be real targeted. <laughs> Just across the board, 6.5%. Across the targeted cuts. That's what we need. That's right. And that's, that's fundamentally the issue is how do you choose, right? So there's this big equity issue between the first world or the developed world and the developing world, I should say, is uh, we have reaped the rewards of industrialisation, mm-hmm. economic growth, 
we're all pretty wealthy. Yes, our lifestyles are much more emissions intensive. It's a bit rich for us to start looking to the developing world and say, well, your birth rate's actually looking a bit high there, mate. And we don't want to see you following the same trajectory that we have in terms of emissions. So we're going to start exporting this policy out to the developing world. And the ridiculous part is, like you said, Westerners are so emissions intensive. The average person living in the United States, which is the most consumerist, the most capitalist society there is, is emitting tens of times more carbon into the atmosphere over the course of their lifetime than the average person living in sub-Saharan Africa. So this just seems like a completely ridiculous policy. And if it was about emissions intensity, it would be the developed world that you would say, actually, you go down to a single child policy. That's right. At at the end of the day, what we're worried about is emissions. We're going to still have people, I assume. So why not just reduce the emissions intensity of of, of those lives? Well, totally. And look, when a population is growing, so usually is economic growth, and it is economic growth that is going to fund the solutions to some of our largest climate problems, right? And what happens as you become wealthier is you see birth rate go down. So in the Western world, you're seeing the birth rate's actually fallen below replacement, right? Which is scary. We're we're already in a lot of places at declining populations where you're super reliant on immigration to fill a lot of your labour force issues. We know that to be true from countries where the birth rate is still increasing. That's right. And the other thing that happens as you get wealthier and you pull countries out of poverty, suddenly you they've start got to the brain recycle. space to think about mm. the environment, about the climate, they start to care. They start to come up with dumb ideas like controlling the population or controlling the birth rate to solve the climate crisis. Yeah, you're not doing that when you're worried about water sanitisation, are you? Mark my words, I'm making this commitment on the podcast, on record. Listeners, you can hold me to account. For every article I see from now on that argues we need to control the population to solve the climate crisis, I will have another trial. (laughs) (laughs) So help me God. Fill up that nine-seater Land Cruiser. Yeah, I hope your wife's (laughs) listening to this. I'll need a truck and trailer, mate. Well, don't look at me for any babysitting roles, Jesse. I am (laughs) not mate. Don't worry about that. Don't worry Um, about that. But let's transition into our hot or not. Hit me, Maddie. What have you got? Well, both of mine are climate change related today. Very hot. I'm very interested in, in it all of a sudden. First one, new regulation in the Himalayas says that you will now have to carry any poo back down to base camp. Hot. Makes sense. Get it out of there. Not. That's disgusting. <laughs> Why don't it just freeze and sort of no, go away? No, the, the climate is changing and Up so there now even. it's getting fucking gross and there's yeah, three well, tonnes grim. of human excrement above base camp on Mount Everest. What about how many tons of bodies though? Yeah, that's right. There's bodies up there, right? Yeah. That's yeah, when well it starts to get pretty bleak. Do you have to pack those too. up as well or <laughs> grim? <laughs> Grim indeed. And um, the other one from me, a fifth of all the world's species on their way to extinction. I mean, clearly not. But I have no idea what to make of these stats. The stats around species numbers are just insane. Because we haven't even found all the species Exactly. There's like five million species in this area that we've not discovered yet. Four million soon. (laughs) That's that's pretty good degrowth, isn't it, in the species? Exactly. That's right. We target the other species. If we want, if we want to save the climate, target the other species. Kill everything else off. Cut herd sizes, dog. just like that. Cut herd sizes. Mosquitoes. I don't know what the emissions intensity of a mosquito is, but bad social license as well. Yeah, <laughs> they're struggling for social <laughs> license. Jesse, what do you got? The Auckland train system falls over because it got too hot in February. Hot or not? Not like it's just going to get warmer. Let's let's get some hotter <laughs> trains out there. Yeah, not either. Chloe Swarbrick looks like she's going to be Green Party leader. I'm a Chloe Swarbrick sycophant. No, we covered this. Yeah, I reckon she'd be good up there. Hot. ANZ predicting another two OCR hikes this year. Jeepers. 
That's painful. That's gonna I'm hurt. looking at Maddie as a fellow mortgage holder. Yeah, it's going to get hard out there. Expect me to start packing my lunch. They are the only one saying that at the moment. Is, is, is yep. my one single sliver of hope is the other banks haven't gone that far yet. But yeah, we'll no one else yet. But they are also like far majority. So they've got 67% of data to look at. It's well, huge. they don't have my debt, so fingers <laughs> crossed. Nor mine. And finally... Uh, people creating fake accounts for the Woolworths Everyday Rewards Scheme <laughs> and scavenging hundreds of dollars worth of groceries for free. People. <laughs> Isn't that just what you do with your weekend? <laughs> Kiwis of a lot of ingenuity. It's hot. It's hot. People, I, honestly, pe- if you if you build the system, the people mm. will come and they will scam you. People finding loopholes in systems as an institution, and so I, I support it. Yeah, I like it. A good Robin Hood story. Well, listeners, you heard it here first. Coming your way soon, a one-child policy and a one rewards card policy. We'll look forward to that, but until then, we'll We'll see see you next week. week.